0: Welcome to the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Olson. This podcast is produced to give fundraisers and nonprofit leaders like you the tools to increase mission impact. Tune in weekly so you don't miss a thing. Your mission is critical. Your resources are finite. You need a partner that can deliver customized, scalable, and relevant donor communications that increase response and maximize net long-term revenue for your cause. You need Altus Marketing. Check us out at altusmktg.com or email me directly at A-O-L-S-E-N at dot com to learn how we can elevate your fundraising results. And now here's today's episode. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show today. I am really excited to be here with Reverend Jeremy Montgomery. He's the president and CEO of Sunday Breakfast Rescue Mission. Uh, and Sunday Breakfast Rescue Mission is uh, about 140-year-old homeless service ministry in the Philadelphia area. Before joining this ministry in 2018, uh, Jeremy served broadly in ministry and social service organizations, including uh, both as a youth minister and associate minister. He founded a nonprofit ministry organization that provided affordable housing solutions, and he served uh, as director of church relations for World Relief and then most recently um, as both Chief Operating Officer and President and CEO of several different Habitat for Humanity chapters on the East Coast. Jeremy, welcome to the show today. It's good to be with you, Andrew. Hey, man, I, I'm really Thanks. excited to get into our conversation. Before we do, could you take just a few minutes, tell, um, tell our listeners a little bit more about you um, and your life's work?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, I w- I'll say... You know, I grew up in a Christian family, and I never wanted to be part of ministry. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, I, I uh, did not want to be a Pharisee. Uh, and so I saw many churches and Christian colleges being Pharisee factories, and I didn't want to be anything but part of that. Uh, but, you know, when God gets a hold of you, that's what you do. And so when I was in high school, um, really, my call to ministry coincided with my salvation, my, my okay. call to serve Christ. And they were completely wrapped together. Uh, So very early on, um, I felt called to urban ministry. And so at the time, there were really no such thing, even at Christian colleges, but North Central Bible College at the time in Minneapolis had that as a major. And so that's where I went. And subsequently after that, went to Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, which does have a school for urban ministry. And so that that was my first um, seminary degree. And then when I was in ministry, I, uh, that led me back to, back to school at Eastern University again, MBA. So to describe really the balance of my experience that I have tried to bring to ministry, it's even finding the equilibrium between oftentimes those two extremes on one hand, a mission and ministry, right. And serving from the heart and, and le- being led by the spirit. And then on the other side, oftentimes competing to that is business. Absolutely. Bottom line, right. The financials working from the head, you know, and, and even serving on boards, oftentimes, you know, that you got both and they're clashing in the middle all the time. Right. So finding the equilibrium where, I mean, no money, no mission, if you've ever heard that before. uh, Right. And yet uh, no mission, you don't get money in terms of raising it. So you got to have both in order to be able to be successful.
0: You know, and I'm glad you brought that up because we. You know, I, I've done uh, 25 or 30 different interviews now with, with leaders from all across the sector. And one of the challenges that we face so often in organizations is either, you know, founder-led organizations or organizations that hire um, and, and promote executives from uh, typically like within the program side or, or in a, a ministry organization from within the, the ministry side of the organization. And, and while those folks might be well-meaning uh, ministerial leaders, they don't always have the business chops and that tends to get organizations in trouble. You and I were talking a little bit um uh, before we we started recording about that and I, I want to get into that. Um you know, one of the interesting things for me contextually about your service right now, you mentioned that you know you're you're serving um as the president and CEO of Sunday Breakfast Rescue Mission which is in Philadelphia. Philadelphia being the fifth uh fifth largest uh city in the country but the poorest large city in the country um, with 24% of the population living below the poverty line. I mean, that's just, that's heartbreaking and fascinating to me. And, and I think, you know, um, as I think about the kind of work that you and your team are doing and, and, you know, in any other city, what that requires is, is difficult already, but in a city that is so, um, Beleaguered by poverty and and so challenged by by need, it's got to be even worse uh, and even a bigger challenge for for you. Um, if you would tell us a little bit about how you got to the mission and what you discovered when you walked in the door,
1: yeah. Quite honestly, uh, originally I just needed a job. Um, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no honest others that you've interviewed. Yeah. I was unemployed, uh, for about eight months before coming here. And I got recruited by a headhunter uh, with a big firm called a uh, Carter Baldwin. And, um, I had just been let go from my position at Habitat Humanity of Broward down in Fort Lauderdale, living in paradise. It was a heart trouble. So uh, I got the call and, uh, April 2018 from the recruiter. And and as soon as he said, yeah, they're looking to onboard in November, I said, (laughs) okay, thank you very much. (laughs) Right. But there's just the way that God works and, you know, doors closed on me with other Habitat chapters and affiliates. Uh, I was crisscrossing the United States interviewing in a lot of places. And so when I arrived, um, what I really felt was the true convergence of all of my experiences. And and it very simply, um, I was able to describe to people because they would look because this was a hard environment to come into. So if we are the uh, uh, city of Philadelphia's largest homeless shelter for men. We had an encampment literally outside the doors of our facility. Wow. Okay. Um, pearl street uh is kind of like the side alley where the main door is into the mission and for decades um it's it's basically been skid row um okay. on this stretch of a couple blocks of, of the city of philadelphia and uh so at open drug dealing deals um a lot of encampments uh people squatting uh, just literally outside the door um and so you know, for, for several weeks, you know, I would pass people in the hall and they'd kind of look at me like, you're the new, new guy, right? And yeah, I'm the new guy. And uh, and they're like, you're still here. <laughs> I'm still here. Yeah, I am. OK, because, you know, it, it just was a hard environment. And even, um, you know, when I talked to the recruiter, um, he said, Jeremy, I mean, the truth is the, the right candidate even needs to feel comfortable of making that right hand turn off of a main street down that alley and feel okay and not feel scared. And he said, we've been talking to top echelon executives, nonprofits, even pastor types, and not everybody can do that. Sure. Uh, So one of my first ministry positions was I did gang intervention in the Boston public schools. Okay. (laughs) So that knowledge actually came to use because I was able to spot and observe and see the gang activity, uh, essentially controlling the block hmm. that the mission sits on. Okay. Wow. And so my urban ministry, both education, um, as well as my experiences, um, really, uh, was able to have eyes wide open to see what was really going on here. Wow. And the truth was the mission was being, um, was gang turf. drug turf the mission itself was drug turf as it relates to um uh, what was going on so in addition to being the largest homeless shelter for men uh, we're also the only provider of three meals a day 365 days of the year in this city of philadelphia okay stop to consider that okay yeah fifth largest city in the united states okay the poorest of the top 10 in the united states one in four people are in poverty. We're the only provider of three meals a day, 365 days of the year in the entire city of Philadelphia, and no agency, organization, or church even comes close. The most is five days a week lunch. Hmm. So our dining room um, pre-COVID was always open and always serving and always benefiting the public as well as our own shelter guests and residents. Okay. So our dining room
0: itself was even controlled by these drug dealers. Wow. Wow. So how do you, as a brand new to the organization leader, walk in and, and start to untangle all of that and bring the kind of leadership necessary to turn that around? I mean, what does that even look like?
1: Yeah. So a couple things, um, you know, in, in leadership circles, we often talk about team, right? Yep. Team, 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 team. So. Uh, first thing I did as the new head coach is I met with everybody on the team. I mean, we had 54 staff at the time. Um, and then in that December 2018, I met individually with every single team member. And what I quickly realized is everybody loved being on the team, but so many were even confused about what sport were <laughs> playing. So Julio, our food food services director, he'd been here about 15 years, graduated of the program, homeless himself, uh, drug addict, and he's still with us. You know, Julio loves baseball. He's Puerto Rican, right? And so Julio, uh, walking around with a bat, right, couldn't understand why everybody was tackling him. Like literally, he was being tackled. Well, metaphorically, tackling him. okay because other team members thought that the sport that they were playing was football. <laughs> okay. Right. Yep. Meanwhile, the people who thought that there was football and they're on the field, right. With helmets on Julio's got a helmet batting helmet. Right. Couldn't understand why Julio was always swinging his bat at him, Right. Is because oh. so in terms of equipment, in terms of yeah. you know, how we score, how the game is played, understanding that this team even lost focus of what, what game, how do, how do we win? They wanted to win. They're on the team. They're called by Christ, and they wanted to score those wins and get people to heaven and rescue them yeah. out of poverty. But just the, even the fundamental language of what it means to win the game. And so learning that and listening to that and understanding that, that we were losing as a team – and just realizing, okay, my job as the head coach is number one, okay, this is the game of football. I don't care. This is the game of football. We're going to use the metaphor, football, yep. all right? <laughs> so we have our offense. We have our defense. We have our rule book. We have our, our equipment. There's The ball looks different in football than baseball. So we're using this ball, folks, right? And this is how we're going to win, and this is how we're going to score. And so if you can imagine just those long yeah. conversations to teach people, Okay, in your job, if you're the running back, right, this this is what you need to do. And it's my job to train you and coach you and ensure that that's all you do. And those that are on the bench, get off the bench. Come on. We need you on the on the the playing field. Right. So um, so that was the first recognition. And then the second thing that I would love um, to draw out is, you know, very initially we started scoring. Right. You started winning some games and people would say, Holy cow, man, Jeremy, like you're awesome. Like, look what you've done. And for me to even just say, Whoa, 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 you don't understand. The last time I checked, even on the best championship teams, the coach never plays. (laughs) I'm not on the playing field. Yeah. I'm not. I mean, it's now on a practice field, a coach should be out there. Okay. but when it comes to game time this is you guys this is you guys this ain't me and so and so what was the scoring um how did the scoring even achieve is is for me to even realize like a lot of the changes a lot of the the things policies uh procedures um the the approach of ministry it, it frankly was even me just listening and allowing them then to
0: play. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does make sense. Yeah. If so you were for me
1: to say, I, I made no, I didn't make these changes. Yeah. I just yeah. listened to you. You said, Jeremy, you know, we might be able to score if we, if we run this play, cool, go for it. Yeah. Next thing you know, they're standing in the end zone. Whoa. And all I did is listen and say, yes, go
0: Yeah. play. So you were telling me before, before we jumped on uh, that you also had to make some some pretty tough calls, though, related to um, you know protecting revenue for the organization and improving the revenue. Um, and one of the things we were we were talking about is this um, this challenge that organizations often have of of focusing on gross revenue, but not not understanding the impact of net and and what the true cost of of operations might be. Can you talk a little bit about what you discovered in that? Uh, as you were assessing things and how that changed the shape of the ministry?
1: Yeah, so like many rescue missions, um, and certainly the context I came from with Habitat Humanity, we had thrift stores here at the Sunday Breakfast Rescue Mission. And um, so part of the 54 employees that we had at the time, many were employed there as truck drivers, as cashiers, of course, the managers and whatnot. Um, So the board did recruit me To save even the thrift stores. Um, I had experience running the one in Fort Lauderdale. That one revenues um, annually about $1.8 million, but it profits about a million dollars for that affiliate. Okay. And so you're right. So many um, of the even naysayers um, said to me when I first came in, well, whatever you do, don't shut down those thrift stores because. You can't lose the revenue. And yet, at the same time, um, again, bringing to bear my my MBA, it's not about the gross revenue. It's not about the top line. It's about the profit. It doesn't matter how much it brings in. And so, even you and I were sharing our, you know, one of the first uh, executive positions I held, you know, it was the annual 5K. And and I was told, oh my God, we raised all this money under this 5K. Well, doing a cost analysis and being able to really analyze even the cost of staff time and and all of those even immeasurables, um, that 5K lost money every year. So yep. <laughs> I was really unpopular to say either this needs to produce profit. Or we shut it down. And same thing with these thrift stores. So coming in in November 2018, uh, my second board member that meeting that December, my recommendation was to shut down those stores. And so one of the first acts within three months of being here was letting 19 people go. And uh, the pain, the pain pain of living with the consequences of even that type of choice. Um, Some had been working in those thrift stores for over 15, 20 years. Yeah. This is not um, your fault, um, but this is about saving the mission. Mm -hmm. And our mission is to serve the hungry, homeless, and hurting of Philadelphia. Our mission is not to sell
0: thrift store product. Right. So, I mean, that is... You know, I've, I've had to do my share of layoffs in the last 20 years and I hate them. I mean, they're, they're, they're They're not, no, they're never easy. It, you know, I, I much prefer to have to have a termination conversation with someone who's, you know, chronically underperformed or something like that, because then there's a reason to it. Right. Yeah. Um, Those are, those are hard conversations and it's hard change management for the people that are left. Right. Yes. Talk talk a little bit about how you kept the team together and what you had to do differently after that, because obviously, you know, if half of uh, their friends and colleagues just had to, to you know, to be let go, that's going to create some angst. I mean, what, what was that like?
1: I mean, very practically, um, I can say this, that uh, to everyone else left uh, that same February 1st of 2019, um, I established a living wage. That's awesome.
0: Okay, so are we, are you the first rescue mission to do that? I don't know. Okay, because <laughs> I, I I mean I've been in this world for twenty two years and I've never heard that before from another mission.
1: Okay, so so we were in financial debt. We had deficit five straight years of deficit budgets here. So to answer your question, what did I do for everyone else? Uh, the board had already handed me a report that the average pay hourly pay. Of the, our 54 employees was $12.35. Okay. Average wow. pay. full-time In Philadelphia. In Philadelphia. So uh, part of letting go, um, many on January 31st, it was then standing at, at an all staff meeting that first week of February and say, effectively, February 1st, every full-time employee here at the mission, now moving forward, minimum is going to make $15 an hour. Awesome. And minimally, um, full health care. Okay. No 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 contribution. Wow. Okay. Okay. And so, yeah, very practically, it, it said to everyone else, we cut these thrift stores because they were losing money. Yep. So the most recent year had been $220,000 of losses just from the stores. And they say, instead, we're investing in you. Okay. So in many respects, the donor dollar was, was supporting and subsidizing those stores. Yeah. Even say, we're going to bring those donor dollars back into this house, (laughs) into this ministry,
0: and you are here and now we are investing in you. That's a great point. I mean, I I didn't even, when you were talking about the losses on the thrift store, I didn't even make that leap, but you're right. I mean, to, to authentically sit in front of a donor and ask for a gift, knowing that the first 220,000 had to go to pay that, you know, debt down.
1: Yeah. And, you know, and justifiably it was viewed as the thrift stores were viewed as a ministry. Sure. Justifiably it was used, used even as a, as a furniture bank to those in need, um, justifiably again, cheap, cheap clothing. Yeah, uh, it was a workforce development training center, um, for those that we are serving on the homeless side. I mean, there were all of those components, but, um, not at a loss or of $220,000. Sure. Yeah. And right. And in, in any situation, I think when you really look at it, you can say we can do better with $220,000 than just to have these stores open. Yep. Right. Yeah, and, absolutely. and it was, a and, and yeah, it was even one of those things. I didn't want to sit in front of a donor. Right. You know, can, can you help us with $10,000 this year? What are you doing with it? And you're, yeah, a, that's a tougher
0: conversation. Well, right.
1: first thing we're going to do is keep our stores open.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No yeah, kidding. And so <laughs> no. And I, yeah. I mean, and I just think of like what's the opportunity cost, right? So if you're going to take that $220,000 or whatever and invest it somewhere, where else could you spend it that it would grow and develop and, you know, either, either do more ministry or deliver more revenue growth so that you could do even more ministry, right? correct yeah i mean that that correct. makes a point and of sense.
1: social enterprise is a cornerstone for many ministries yeah. again habitat coming from that restores for many is their lifeblood as well as thrift stores for um rescue missions and many yep. other rescue missions have gone on to so many other types of social enterprise right yep. so it's
0: valuable but the bottom line is those enterprises
1: should be profitable
0: yeah, hundred percent agree. So I'm I'm curious. You know, that's that's a ton of change to to deliver into an organization in a very short period. Um, to to be able to sustain that, you've got to be working from a, a place of some really strong and and well considered core values. Talk to me about the values that are most important to you as a leader.
1: Oh. Uh... Yeah, I think it's a great question. Um, I I think one of the core values um, is even the ones that we try to employ with the men um, whom we serve. Um, And it's just, it can be boiled down to a formula. Uh, So again, MBA uh, and seminary, (laughs) here we go. Um, And and the formula is this, uh, rules. Again, I described to you in in a game, you need to have rules. Um, rules minus relationship, though, equals rebellion. Oh, interesting. Resistance. Okay. Huh. Yeah. So that's the formula: rules minus relationship equals <coughs> resistance and rebellion. <laughs> rules plus relationship equals respect. <laughs> And uh, so that this is not my formula. Uh, it actually comes from my wife. I don't know where she got it from, okay. but you're very proud that I gave her the, the shout <laughs> out. Right. Um, and so and so when we look even as Christians to what relationship means, even with our heavenly father, you know, that we look to see that that relationship comes through his son, Jesus Christ. So it, it's a simple model even to look at what's so powerful about the son of God coming to earth. It's boiled down to this simple word, incarnational, incarnation, the incarnation of Christ. He himself came to be present amongst us. Hmm. And so that is even as simple as I define relationship. Um, Back when I did gang intervention um, and youth ministry, I did a lot of times a youth ministry, whether you're in a young life context or those types of ministry, (laughs) incarnational ministry is the name of the game. You yeah. have to be on their turf. You have to be present where they are. And that's the best way to form a relationship is be around, be present. Um, so just giving an example here, um, you know, in most organizations and ministries, there's always that either silo that dichotomy between frontline and the office sure yeah literally it it is separated by a floor you know frontline is the first floor and second floor is the offices and administrative uh um, um functions um and as early as november uh that that december taking my first lunch appointment out and about you know we're a couple blocks from very historic great places to eat and realizing my donors even in these appointments wanted to be one place only and our that was our own dining room. <laughs> so ever since every day I eat in that dining room. Wow every okay. day I come down, I sit with staff or I sit with one of the men that we serve. And so if you so if you think about it, the incarnational aspect of that leadership to develop relationships where sometimes they know more about me than I that 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 I you know, that I even understand, you know, I got stopped by one of our guys. He'd been with us for probably, you know, less than a week last week. And he goes, Hey, uh, so how do you deal with your gout? (laughs) Like, what? (laughs) how do you know I have gout? I I didn't react that way. I was like, Oh, well, you know, I take some medication. (laughs) (laughs) This guy guy understood that, you know, uh, you know, about two years ago I had a flare up of some gout. Thank you, Jesus. You know, (laughs) Right. Um, but it, so rules, right. Plus the relationship equals the respect. Mm -hmm. And so we, we pump that into our staff, our frontline, and even just even our administrator, our fundraisers is you got to know who our staff are. You got to know the men that we serve first name basis. I'm always challenging them, you know, give me some names give me some names of people that you've, of these guys that you've talked to, that you've met, that you've heard their stories. Yeah. And, um, and without that relationship rules is
0: just resistance. And rebellion. Yeah. that makes a lot of sense. So you've, uh, you've dealt with a lot already in the couple of years you've been at the mission. Um, and it sounds like there, it was a series of, at least early on a series of, uh, crisis, crisis after crisis, you know, sort of as things be began to stabilize, what did you learn about yourself in that process?
1: Hmm. Um, I do have blind spots. Okay. Um, as the coach, I'd like to think that, you know, I've learned the game enough that um, I know how to play it myself. And um uh, there are sometimes that I violate my own rules. Fair enough. Yeah. And, um, and just the, the humility to recognize that, um, even the best thing I can model to my own team is, is my own confessions <laughs> and my own admissions of like, yeah, you know, I just really came in with a bad attitude today. And yeah. It's okay. Cause you do, you have those two, don't you? Yeah. Well, as you can see, um, human. So, Blind spots. Um, I would have thought and like to have thought, believed that at this point in my life, um, I was aware of them okay. and, um, and I still have some. Okay,
0: That's good learning. Um, so we've got time for, I think like two more questions, probably. Sure. I, 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 the next one I want to get your perspective on is, you know, you, you've been leading organizations uh, and, and groups of people for a long time. What's what's something that you'd share with a, you know someone who's a new or emerging leader that you wish somebody had shared with you on day one? Um,
1: another story. Okay, so say that again. I'm going to share another story. Okay. Yeah. Okay. This is a story I share all the time. It can be summarized with this: um, never, ever, ever ever ask someone else to do something that you are unwilling to do yourself <laughs> ever. And so the story I, I, I share connected with that is um, it was my, it was the summer before my senior year in Bible college or okay. central Bible college, now North central university, man, I land, landed a paid internship at an urban church down in Dallas, Texas. And, and that just didn't exist paid. Right. I was going to get paid. <laughs> To be an intern at this urban church. Uh, so in South Dallas, uh rough, rough area, I think still to this day, in Keistwood, um, arrived, drove all the way down Interstate 35 from Minneapolis and into Dallas, arrived really excited, was met by the pastor, and he said, Welcome, you know, to Texas with a with a southern draw, right? And you know, follow me, you Yankee, essentially. <laughs> And so he proceeded for the next 45 (laughs) minutes to give me a complete tour of the entire church facility, including a gymnasium, the sanctuary. And of course, this tour, and I shouldn't say of course, because I didn't realize it at the time. The tour, I slowly began to realize, only consisted of showing me where all the janitor closets were. Hmm. And I began slowly to understand what was really a misunderstanding of my part that the reason why i was paid is because for the summer i was going to get to leave live for free in the parsonage on the property okay. and for the summer i was going to be the church custodian <laughs> okay so so yeah like that's what you know that 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 former custodian just moved out. So it was empty and I was going to get to live there actually with another intern. And so my dreams of finally getting to preach and get to do youth ministry and to serve in this, you know, larger African-American inner city successful church was suddenly diminished real quick on the spot to realize I was going to be mowing. I spent the summer mowing the grass and the hot, you know, Texas heat and wow. mopping the floors and making sure that the that the carpet in the sanctuary had the right you know, lines in it for the pastor because he he did all the preaching, right? And so uh, at the last janitor closet, he took a mop, and he walked me into the bathroom, opened the stall, brought me into the stall, handed me the mop, and he said, he said you know why you're doing this this summer, right? And I was like, because I thought I was going to get paid, <laughs> right, and to do ministry. And he goes, No. This is the lesson I want you to learn until we can trust you to care for this toilet. Nobody's going to trust you to care for their soul. Wow. Wow.
0: That's insightful. Yeah.
1: you, I, I've been able to share that story um, still tongue in cheek because <laughs> it was a painful though, but I, I share it all the time, you know, in the, in the role of CEO, I must be first to walk into that janitor's closet when the toilet is overflowing and begin mopping up. And, and you better believe, especially in this facility, so many rush to take it out of my hand. Be like, what are you doing, man? Like
0: I'm, I'm cleaning up. Yeah. I can imagine. But- how
1: much trust that that gains in ministry when we are as leaders are always willing to demonstrate, we are first willing to do it and there's and yeah you can see how many times I share that story in just so many ways it can apply to um I mean you know the buzzwords of servant leadership and servitude and then again incarnation Jesus man like he came and was born in a manger like I mean all of those connections yeah Uh, at the time um it wasn't a fun summer
0: (laughs) I can imagine now
1: 1995 Dallas Texas um but to this day. Um, so yeah, the advice to an upcoming leader, um, um, become a janitor. (laughs) Jesus was first a carpenter, the son of a carpenter. Yeah. You think that he was doing, um, the the beautiful fun work for his father with his father. It was his father that was crafting, um, things out of wood, Jesus was doing a lot of janitorial custodian work. Yeah.
0: Cleanup work for sure himself. Right. Yeah. That's, that's phenomenal. All right. So last question for you, and yeah. this is a little different than I've done in, in other conversations, but I would love it if you'd take two minutes, maybe and tell us a, the most encouraging story of life change that you've experienced at the mission so far. Oh.
1: Man, um, COVID-19 really tested us and we won. (laughs) Um, So this time last year, um, we had experienced 57 positive cases at this time last year. Um, So when we first shut down our dining room to serving the public on March the 16th, uh, which that's what we do. Hope begins with a meal. We serve people needing to pivot within two days to do grab and go meals. So still to this day, our dining room's not open, uh, but for us as a team to again, to pivot, to still feed and take care of the hungry, to this day, we're the only dinner provider seven days a week in the city of Philadelphia to somebody who's hungry. Um, as you can imagine, we all remember uh, as early as March, I had to leave it voluntary for many staff, um, to come to work. Okay. Right. Um, yeah. they're not all of us are, are frontline. And throughout the entire pandemic, I had a hundred percent of the staff report. Wow. To work. Wow. The only time that we went remote was uh, from a period of May 7th of, of 2020. Uh, so roughly again, we just crossed the anniversary to the 28th for three weeks we had a complete facility lockdown because we had 35 positive cases when we had 63 in the building. Okay. So we were tested on um, uh, April the 29th by the public health department, the entire facility of 63 of us and 35 were positive and asymptomatic. Wow. So it meant that none of us could uh, go home. Um, I went from a period of time of uh, February 23rd to July 29th without seeing my two boys, uh, I have two boys in North Jersey, uh, so a okay. distance from them. I had many other staff that had to make similar choices not to see their children. Um, so, in those tough times, though, really learning what the word hero means, <laughs> and what being selfless, and what it means to sacrifice and lay our lives down for men that, in many respects because their homeless are still pretty ugly (laughs) and unkept and, you know, all those things like, like, you know, the real vulnerable and the real downtrodden and and seeing my staff overcome. And, uh, and so one of the monikers that we, you know, uh, last year really got a chuckle out of is now (laughs) even nationally, we have a new definition of what it means to be essential. (laughs) Right? Yep.
0: For that sure. Not
1: in Our vocabulary, right. No. Or, or mandatory, right. Or frontline and all those things. So that was the, that was the uplifting encouragement and those tough times is, Hey, hey you're essential. <laughs> you're essential. That's right. I'm essential. I'm a, you know, like even, you know, needing to provide letters. To my staff, that if they got pulled over from police, they wouldn't be stopped because of the stay at home order. Oh,
0: okay. Many
1: missions we had to do that because in cities like this, there was a stay at home order. Sure. We had to issue letters that if they got pulled over by the police or questioned, they can say, I have a job. I'm essential. I work in a rescue mission homeless shelter. Clear. And it it happened. I had staff being pulled over. What are you doing out? Wow. What are you doing about? Uh, I I work.
0: Yeah. I'm essential. <laughs> wow, well, that's fascinating, Jeremy. Thank you so much for being here. I, I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. And, um, really encouraged by what you're doing and just the the transformation of the ministry in, in Philadelphia. So, if somebody wants to connect with Sunday Breakfast Rescue Mission, what's the best way?
1: SundayBreakfast.org. That's All right. simple. All yeah. right, and and if they want to connect on with you directly, what's that?
0: If they want to connect with you directly, what's the best way for that? Uh, yeah,
1: on, on our website is my my email, jmontgomery at SundayBreakfast.org. Awesome. Yeah, reach out and come serve a meal. You know, come come visit us if you're in Philadelphia, uh, and if you're takes. inclined, give a donation. Yeah, I, I said, right. and
0: if you're inclined, give a donation as well. Yes.
1: Yeah, we can we can use it. We're still 100 percent private, uh, no government funds, and so we we utilize
0: donations very wisely. Awesome. Well, thank you again for being here, man. Thanks, man. Yeah, likewise. Blessings. Have you read my Amazon number one best selling book, "101 Biggest Mistakes Nonprofits Make and How You Can Avoid Them" yet? It's the book that I wrote with expertise from over 20 nonprofit leaders and their 300 years of combined experience. You can download it for free today. Just visit andrewolson.net and go to the free resources tab on my site.